Well, if you're new among us today, we're uh, we're in a series through the New Testament book called the Acts of the Apostles, uh, which is a, a history of the first, I don't know, 35, 40 years of the church. Um, and um, that phrase, turning the world upside down, is, is from Acts chapter 17, where some people referred to the apostles as these men who turned the world upside down. That's what the gospel does. In our lives, it changes us, it redirects us, it transforms us. The title of this message is Paul, Patrick, and Missional Priorities. This past week, uh, all around the world, especially in Ireland and here in the United States, uh, we observed yet another St. Patrick's Day. And uh, who here this morning is Irish? Any, any, any Irish people? Look, up and proud, come on. All right. God bless you. <laughs> How many of you, whether Irish or not, did something to observe St. Patty's Day? You, you wore the green? Uh, okay. Uh, maybe uh, you put up some St. Patrick's Day decorations. You, you enjoyed some corned beef. How many of you had corned beef? That's, that's kind of the big thing, I guess, these days. Or, or maybe you, uh, you drank an Irish beverage. Or, or <laughs> maybe, maybe you just poured yourself a bowl of Lucky Charms on Friday morning. And, you know, the, the budget approach. So... That's good. Well, well, I'm going to venture uh, a guess that relatively few of us actually know uh, much more about St. Patrick than, than some of the mythology that over time has attached itself to his story, like uh, leprechauns and shamrocks and driving the snakes out of Ireland. Well, who was the real St. Patrick? I want to give you just a little glimpse this morning, so take a look at this video. Great story. It's a great story. That's just a little bit of it. The world and the Christian faith owe much to St. Patrick. St. Patrick's Day is about being Irish, to be sure. Uh, but more than that, it's all about being Christian, distinctively Christian, and investing yourself energetically in the advancement of the gospel. I, I want to say to those of you who are educators this morning, this is just kind of an aside to you, whether whether you teach in a public school or a private school or a home school, that uh, you could very effectively utilize this amazing story of St. Patrick to teach things like history and geography, literature, poetry, music, morality, ethics, philosophy, mythology, leadership, Christian faith, Christian mission, and more. And uh, just uh, just great stuff. Well, someone finished this sentence for me. When in Rome, do as the Romans do. When in Rome, do as the Romans do. Where did that statement come from? How many of you think that, that it had a secular origin? Come on. Some of you, right? Secular, right? Okay. How many of you think it has a, a religious origin? Some of you. How many of you just don't care? <laughs> All right. I mean, let's just be honest about that. How many of you think the answer is Jesus? <laughs> to answer the question, we need to take another little side trip, this time to Italy, um, right about the same time in history, just, just as the 4th century was turning into the 5th century A.D., uh, a contemporary of St. Patrick, Augustine of Hippo, was asked by his mother, Monica, how, how she should navigate a conflict of conscience uh, that she was experiencing. She had moved from Milan, Italy, to uh, the capital city of Rome. And in Rome, 
She found the Christians observed each Saturday as a day of fasting. Uh, settling into Milan, she had quickly come to the realization that the Christians in that city did not fast on Saturdays. What should she do? Uh, and some of you would say, well, who cares, right? But these are Catholic people. These, these things are serious. Augustine, whom we now know as St. Augustine, uh, didn't have a ready answer for his mother. So he posed the question in a letter to one of his mentors, uh, Ambrose, uh, who later became St. Ambrose, the elderly bishop replied with a simple answer. He, he said, when I go to Rome, I fast on Saturday. But here in Milan, I do not. You should observe the customs of the church where you are. And, and though they've been modified and often taken out of context, Ambrose's wise words have lived on as that persistent proverb, one in Rome, do as the Romans do. Ambrose was actually expressing what, what's become recognized really as an essential uh, principle of uh, cross-cultural relations in general, Christian mission uh, in specific, which is the necessity of, of intelligently and appropriately adapting to and accommodating cultural differences. In the case of cross-cultural relationships, it has to do with basic understanding and respect. In regard to missions, it has to do with clearing away obstacles to the, the communication and the reception of the gospel. So let, let's just shift this into a contemporary context to, to bring it closer to home. The, this week I, I made contact with the three missionary couples that we as a church support uh, and asked them to reply with a few thoughts about um, some cultural adaptations, some uh, accommodations they've had to make in order to remove obstacles to the gospel in the countries where they're serving. And here are some of their answers, and we'll just call this when in Japan. When in Japan. Um, Ian and Maki Smith. Uh, Ian is actually from here in Olympia. Uh, he's, he's a homegrown missionary for us. Uh, he recently married the lovely Maki, and uh, see how happy they are there. And uh, we're happy for them. Um, so Ian shared three things that he's, uh, three accommodations that he's made or is making. First he wrote, you know, Japanese people are very polite, sometimes overly so. The highest cultural value among the Japanese is harmony. And one of the worst labels a person can have applied to them is that they are meiwaku or troublesome. As a loud American, I've had to give greater attention to how other people perceive me, especially in public, if I want to gain a hearing among them for the gospel. If, if you know Ian, you know exactly what he's saying here. Uh, loud American. We Americans tend to value authenticity, spontaneity, and straight talk, he says, but Japanese are much more subtle and indirect. This is an ongoing challenge for me. But I'd like to think that I'm not quite as uncouth as when I first arrived. Secondly, the Japanese love to give and receive gifts. When someone gives a gift, it's often true that a gift is anticipated in return. To a Westerner, this can seem very transactional at first. But as one of my veteran missionary colleagues used to say, you cannot outgive a Japanese person. I'm thankful for my wife, Maki, because she is very thoughtful in giving gifts to others. And her generosity often results in generous gifts given in return, which leads to a deepening of relationships. These gifts don't have to be expensive. They can often be something like a small package of sweets or a potted flower. 
getting into a nuclear arms race of gift giving, love that expression, can be off-putting for some people who are new to Japanese culture, but it can also be a great opportunity to share the lavish gift of God's grace with others. Third, Japanese people are also very punctual. And this is just such a poignant illustration. For example, the trains run on time, and uh, we know Japanese, they all ride the trains, right? And, And if for some reason they're running late, which is very rare, the train conductors will actually distribute official notes to passengers to give to their employers who would not believe them otherwise. To the individual, punctuality demonstrates respect and honor. Showing up on time, well-dressed with a thoughtful small gift, can greatly endear one to others in this culture. This may be just as true in the United States, but it's dialed up to a much higher degree of importance in Japan. So there's three, right? So what about the UK where Will and Katie Lowry are? Abiyad and Faliki and I were on a Zoom call with the Lowrys last week. When, when I asked them about cultural adaptations they're, they're having to make, now Will's answer was surprisingly similar to Ian Smith's. He identified with the image of the, the loud or aggressive American who pursues conversation with others about personal matters more naturally, uh, more quickly than, than is usually comfortable for the British or for representatives of other countries and cultures that are present there in Birmingham, England, where they are. He expressed a personal need to learn to scale it back a bit and allow more time in developing relationships. And then third, uh, Josh and Ashley Freeman uh, went in Togo. Another newlywed couple. See, aren't they just glowing there? Glowing. What they're just this. They're a great couple. I hope that we'll have a chance to have them come to Life Point sometime so you can meet them. Uh, the first adaptation, this is Ashley responding. She said, the first adaptation that comes to mind is in sharing the gospel. In Western culture, the central themes tend to be guilt and innocence. In Togolese culture, the central theme is fear and power. So we have to t- take a different approach in evangelism here. By the way, and you've heard this, but Togo is the the heart uh, and, the, and the, the beginning place of voodoo. And it's just, uh, the whole country is just overwhelmed with voodoo. So the fear and power thing. So we have to take a different approach in evangelism here than we would in the United States. We often talk about light and darkness and recognize the need to focus on the power of God when sharing the gospel. Their question is, which God is most powerful? So we have to provide the answer and the evidence for it. Secondly, she wrote, another cultural adaptation is the way we dress. Although I wear jeans in America and shorts, skirts, or dresses that don't reach all the way to my knee, I dress differently here. I always wear things that reach down to my knee, and I never wear pants. People here would not respect me in the same way if I didn't dress in ways that are culturally appropriate. A third one that I've not yet mastered is that relationally, it is a very indirect culture. So when there's a problem, everyone talks around the issue instead of just directly naming it. We always have to recognize that when trying to listen effectively and when addressing problems. So what our missionaries have have shared are a number of important cultural adaptations or accommodations that they have made or that they're making, some of which are not natural, some of them which are not 
easy, politeness, subtlety, gift-giving, punctuality, a slower approach to the pursuit of relationships, a different paradigm for sharing the gospel, culturally appropriate apparel, a less direct approach to conflict resolution and problem-solving. All issues in relationships and in communicating the gospel. Well, these themes of cultural adaptation and accommodation are a primary issue in cross-cultural relationships and cross-cultural missions, and it's a major theme in today's text, Acts 21, 17 through 26. Let's stand and read it together, just ten verses. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law, and they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses." telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law." But as for the Gentiles who have believed, you have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. This is God's word. You may be seated. Well, let's begin with uh, then this, this report from the field in verses 17 to 28. Let me just re- read that very quickly for review. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James. All the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And notice uh, on the Luke's pronouns uh, are still we and us. We've been uh, observing that uh, there are some passages where it's all they and them. And uh, the we passages are, are indicators of times when Luke was actually present and part of the team. So on this occasion, we included um, Paul, uh then three men from Macedonia, Sopater from Berea, Aristarchus and Secundus from Thessalonica, Gaius from Derby, and, and then, uh, four, uh, from Asia, Minor, Timothy, Tychicus, Trophimus, and Luke. Uh, Luke is the, the writer, the narrator of this story. To a man, uh, all of Paul's traveling companions were Gentile believers in Jesus. Luke was the only Jew uh, among this team. So so don't miss the the enormous significance of this statement that the brothers received us gladly. The brothers, who are the brothers? They're the they're the leaders of the the Jewish believing leaders of the church in Jerusalem. 
They received us gladly. If we were to take some time to reflect on that statement, we would be amazed, I think, at the the saving power of the gospel, uh, of the unifying power of the Holy Spirit, of the history-making importance and and effect of uh, the earlier Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15. What an auspicious moment this must have been. See, only the power of God could ever bridge the, the seemingly insurmountable religious and ethnic divide that existed between Jews and Gentiles. Paul wrote to the Gentile believers in Ephesians uh, 2, 13-16, but now in Christ Jesus... You who once were far off, speaking to Gentiles, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. Today, as we see racism again on the rise in our nation, many people fomenting racial conflict, it is on us as followers of Jesus Christ to declare with conviction and authority that it's only the power of the cross that that can ultimately bring racial healing and reconciliation. How our country needs that today. Paul and company met that day with James, the half-brother of Jesus, who had emerged as the leader of the Jerusalem church. With James were the elders of the church. Uh, Given that Jewish Christians in Jerusalem now numbered in the thousands, the, the number of elders must have been somewhat proportional. And so this is probably a very large gathering, and it must have gone on for quite a long time because Luke says that Paul related to them related to them one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And and uh, we know from having read and studied this book now for over a year, um, that was a lot of stuff, a lot of things God had done, amazing things that God had done. Uh, and notice that this is not a rehearsal of what Paul had done. It, it, it It's a detailed recounting that Paul gave of what God had done. The genuine Christian mission is not man-centered. It's not man-glorifying. It's God-centered and God-glorifying. And let's not miss Luke's comment that, that these Jewish believers in Jesus, these, these leaders of the predominantly Jewish church in Jerusalem, genuinely glorified God when they heard the report of God's work among the Gentiles. You know, there was no rolling of the eyeballs or... Or, or, or acting bored or underwhelmed. It, it was an occasion for genuine praise. Something else happened here as well, although for some reason Luke doesn't include it in the narrative until chapter 24 and verse 17, and only briefly at that. Paul and his friends, uh, you may remember, presented to the leaders of the Jerusalem church, and this was the occasion, that very generous offering that they had brought from the churches, the Gentile churches in the West, their Gentile brothers and sisters in Christ. And and remember that the occasion for the offering was the fact that a, a famine had spread across Judea, resulting in hunger and financial hardship for Jews and Jewish Christians. 
And so that the delivery of this financial gift was pretty important. And the sole reason that uh, all of these other men, these representatives of the churches in Macedonia and Asia, had accompanied Paul to Jerusalem was this. It was to, to demonstrate solidarity between the, the Gentile churches of the West with their Jewish brothers and sisters and, and, and to demonstrate the unity of the church. Paul was concerned that, that the Jerusalem church wouldn't understand why they were doing this and would not understand the spirit in which this offering was being given. And we know this because he urged the Roman Christians to pray with him that the, quote, contribution I take to Jerusalem may be favorably received by the Lord's people there, end quote. May be favorably received by the people there. He, he hoped that this gift would which was a positive expression of fellowship, would be received that way, that the, that the Jewish Christians would reciprocate by receiving it, and, and it would appear that those prayers were answered and that they received it that way. And yet there was still a tension underlying the welcome that was extended to Paul and his friends there by the Jerusalem church, and it's revealed in the, the request from the leadership um, in verses 20 and 21. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law, and they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our Customs. Well, let's just pause there for a moment. Uh, it, it seems as if they're saying, Paul, it's wonderful that God's calling so many Gentiles to faith. We, we really praise God with you for that. But, but look, Paul, look how many thousands of Jews have, have also come to faith in Jesus as Messiah. That, that's an occasion to praise God as well, don't you think? And, and they add that all of these thousands of Jewish believers are zealous for the law. And not only that, but they have never heard and been affected by, or they have heard and, and been affected by rumors that you, Paul, are, are teaching the Jews who have been dispersed by the persecution out from Judea, who are living in other countries, who are living among Gentiles, to forsake the law of Moses, telling them, not to circumcise their children or walk according to Jewish customs. Ouch. Ouch. What did the elders in Jerusalem understand about what Paul was teaching? Did they view these accusations as accurate? Or or did they see them as a a product of misinformation and misplaced rumors. I think it was the latter. I think that the elders in Jerusalem actually knew that the Judaizers, those Jews who insisted that that for Gentiles to become Christians, that they first had to become Jews and submit to the rite of circumcision, I think they understood that those guys were spreading lies about Paul's teaching and and that the the rumors were traveling rapidly through the grapevine. Uh, I don't think that they were representing their own feelings or their own understanding. Uh, 
But I think the elders in Jerusalem understood that, that this misunderstanding of Paul's teaching could just explode the already fragile bonds that existed between Jewish and Gentile Christians. So there's two loaded issues here. There's circumcision and there's Jewish customs apart from that. So what did Paul teach about circumcision? Was he encouraging Jewish believers not to circumcise their children? No, he was not encouraging them not to circumcise their children. But he was warning them not to allow themselves to believe that their circumcision could ever be the ground of their salvation, that that they're saved simply because they're Jews, but only by personal faith in Jesus as Messiah. I don't have time to develop Paul's teaching on circumcision this morning. We've, We've visited that subject before. But uh, if you're taking notes this morning, here are a few scripture texts uh, to consult. If you want to explore it further, take a look at Romans 2, uh, 12 through 29. Romans 2, 12 through 29. Or 1 Corinthians 7, uh, verses 17 through 20. 1 Corinthians 7, 17 to 20. And then Galatians 5, uh, 1 through 6. You'll recognize that, that Paul, as a Jew did not cease to observe the, the the portions of the law of Moses that did not pertain to atonement for sin. And sometimes as, as uh, American Gentiles in the 21st century, uh, we can kind of lump it all together. Uh, but the law is much larger. There are large portions of the law that have nothing to do with sacrifice for the forgiveness of sin, for justification before God, uh, for a, a Jewish believer to continue to observe those other aspects of the law was totally appropriate. Uh, posed no problem at all for Paul. I found uh, Albert Moeller's comments on this to be really clear, really helpful. He He wrote this, the relationship between a believing Jew and the law a believing Jew, a Christian Jew, and the law is a biblically complicated issue. On the one hand, the Jewish believer cannot find salvation in the Jewish traditions. On the other hand, Scripture does not forbid Jews to continue their practice of Jewish customs. It's best to understand this issue in specific contexts. For Jewish Christians, this is an issue of local adaptation. They can, one, integrate themselves into the lifestyle of the Gentiles while having a respect for their own Jewish history, just kind of melt into Gentile culture while maintaining respect for that history. On the other hand, they can they can also continue, he writes, in Jewish customs, but with the understanding that salvation comes only through Christ and Christ alone. And so the elders, the Jerusalem elders, therefore wanted, he says, to cautiously keep the gospel at the forefront of these Jews' lives while respecting their individual consciences. So the Jerusalem elders ask in verse 22, What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live 
in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. That, that letter that they point to there in verse 25 was the decision of the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15 uh, when the leadership met and made that landmark decision not to require Gentile believers to submit to circumcision or to keep the law of Moses. So that was water under the bridge. And, and the elders on this occasion are, are reassuring Paul that, that the judgment rendered on that occasion had not, will not change. But they do make this request of Paul which was to engage in a visible action that they hoped would put to rest any concern that the Jewish believers in Jerusalem uh, had about Paul's observance of the law. So there were these four men in the church. Uh, They had taken a Nazarite vow. It was a ready opportunity. We saw that earlier in Acts, specifically chapter 18, and we observed then that it had nothing to do with salvation. It had everything to do with cultivating one's own consecration to God. In fact, on that occasion, it was Paul who had taken a Nazarite vow, Paul himself. And today we might view that Nazarite vow as a spiritual discipline for deepening one's walk with God. That's really what it was all about. You can read about that in Numbers chapter 6, verses 1 to 21. Paul agreed to their proposal. And so the next day he, he took steps to connect with these four men and begin the process, which included the rites in the temple. Verse 26, then Paul took the men and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. Now I understand this is all foreign territory and we, we don't really understand what's going on here. But uh, because Paul had been on the road, he would have had to regain ceremonial purity. Uh, it involved a seven-day rite of purification before he could be ever even considered being part of the ceremony for these four Jewish Christians uh, in the temple. So he, he reported to the priest at the start of his own seven days of purification. And on that day, when he met with him, he would have informed the priest of three things. First of all, that he was providing the funds to cover the the offerings, the required offerings of uh, the four men who had taken the Nazarite vows. There, there were there were financial considerations in, in this vow. Secondly, he would have informed the priest about the date when when those guys' vows would have been completed, and then third, uh, when he would be with those four men for their concluding ceremonies, whether they did that as a group or individually. And then during that week of purification for Paul, he'd return again on the third day and on the seventh day, and he would be sprinkled with water for his own purification. I understand it's all mumbo-jumbo to us, right? But 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 there it is. So So why would the Jerusalem church leaders have considered this such an incredibly important demonstration for Paul, given the tension of the moment. It's this, because to pay the charges, to, to, to make the offering, as it were, um, for, for the Nazarite vow, the completion of the Nazarite vow was considered an act of incredible piety. 
by the Jews. It was an act of incredible generosity. It was a symbol of deep identification with the Jewish people. You know, there have been many Christians down through the centuries who have criticized Paul for submitting to this, for giving in to the Jerusalem elders on this matter. Uh, They would say that that Paul compromised uh, the fundamental principle of freedom from the law that he so vigorously taught on other occasions. So how do we make sense of it? First, I think we need to understand the historical moment. This was still a period of transition for Jewish Christians in particular. Uh, They were still following temple worship. They were observing uh, the, the annual Jewish feasts. There's no instance in the New Testament where Paul ever taught that this was wrong for Jewish believers, as long as it was voluntary, as long as it wasn't imposed on Gentile believers, and as long as it didn't compromise the gospel of salvation by grace through faith, made available only through the cross of Jesus Christ. Secondly, Paul could have denied their request. He, he, he could have said, you know, not on your life. You, you can't make me. You're not the boss of me. <laughs> but Paul was all about preserving the unity of the church. Remember, he wrote to the, the, I think it was the Ephesians, and said, be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And he didn't want to leave in place any obstacle to the reception of the gospel by the rest of the Jews in Jerusalem. And his decision-making on this occasion is a vivid illustration of the principles that he expressed uh, when he wrote to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 9, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. See, Paul never, ever compromised the central affirmations of the gospel, the purity of that doctrine. He never compromised his own conscience by his cultural adaptations, whether he was preaching to Jews or Gentiles, whether he was in Judea, Samaria, Syria, Cilicia, Asia, Macedonia, Achaia, Greece, or Rome. He he persisted in preaching personal faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. The gospel does not change. And you and I must never compromise the gospel, but the manner The manner in which we present it has to change. It has to change, depending on the audience and the cultural setting. See, I think one one simple way of understanding this, one simple axiom, is that there are many ways to Jesus, but there is only one way to God, and that's through Jesus. And so we need to help people come from wherever they are to wherever he is. And the good news is that uh, he's not 
He's not sitting stationary. Jesus is still seeking and saving the lost. So what are some realizations for today? Here's what I want you to walk away with today. Luke doesn't deal for us, uh, detail for us, all of the cultural adaptations, all of the accommodations that Paul made as he traveled all those thousands of miles through the regions that he evangelized and where he planted churches and appointed leaders. But it isn't hard if you're a thinking person, to realize that that as he was traveling, he made disciples among a diversity of cultures and languages. How many adjustments do you think that Paul had to make along the way? What kind of intelligence and creativity and versatility uh, did Paul bring to bear in order to make the message of the gospel understandable? Uh, to each of the individuals, each of the different people groups that he encountered along the way. On how many occasions would Paul have had to deny himself, uh, his own preferences, his own comfort, his own convenience, his own wants, his own needs, in order to serve others and show them Jesus. See, in today's text, we saw one very important accommodation that he made for the unity of the church and the advance of the gospel. And Paul uh, certainly has set a high bar for us in his example uh, for our own lives, our own relationships, our own efforts to reach others with the gospel. And it's an example of intelligence. It's an example of versatility. It's an example of self-denial. It's an example of servanthood. A guy named George Hunter wrote a book titled The Celtic Way of Evangelism, and and he wrote similarly of St. Patrick. The fact, uh, this quote from, from the book, the fact that Patrick understood the people and their language, their issues and their ways, serves as the most strategically significant single insight that was to drive the wider expansion of Celtic Christianity and stands as perhaps our greatest single learning from this movement. Remember, God prepared Patrick by taking him away from Britain into slavery in Ireland for all of those years. He knew the, he, he came to know the Irish people. Hunter goes on, there is no shortcut to understanding the people. When you understand the people, you will often know what to say and do and how. When the people know that the Christians understand them, they infer that maybe the high God understands them too. Isn't that good? Another writer, David Mathis, said of him, Patrick knew the Irish well enough to engage them where they were and build authentic gospel bridges into their society and culture. He wanted to see the gospel grow in Irish soil rather than pave it over with a Roman road. Love that. And Patrick himself echoed, I think, Paul's principle of becoming all things to all people so that by all means he might save some, when he himself wrote, I am a slave in Christ to a foreign nation for the unspeakable glory of the eternal life which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, the challenge for each of us is to enter the lives of those we desire to reach with the gospel in such a way that we gain a personal understanding of what they need from us 
in order to receive the message. And then it's incumbent upon us to provide that without compromising either the message of the gospel or our own obedience to God in the process. As I've thought about this, these things this week, I've realized how incredibly lazy I am. And how, how inconvenienced I don't want to be in reaching people with the gospel. That don't, they're people that really don't know him. See, the one who shows us that most clearly and fully is the Lord Jesus Christ, who, who made an accommodation of cosmic proportion when he took leave of the glories of heaven came to earth, took upon himself human flesh, revealing the Father to us, offering the ultimate sacrifice in order to save us from our sin. So let me ask you this as we close. What efforts, and I'm asking myself these same questions, what efforts, what adaptations, what accommodations do you need to make? What inconveniences might you have to embrace in order to reach the people in your life who do not yet know Christ. Maybe they're in your family. Maybe they're, maybe they're friends. Maybe they're co-workers. Don't you think that the cost to you might be worth it for their sake in light of eternity? See, I think in these last days, God is calling you and me to be on mission. Missionary people declaring, demonstrating the message of the gospel of God who, who loves, who, who saves, who forgives, who reconciles, who's coming again to judge the earth. And the salvation of those around us is worth any and every effort. You might not always get it right. Shouldn't we make the effort? May we be found faithful. Let's pray together. As we bow our heads, I'd like to ask you to, again, in the quietness of these moments, silently lift before the Lord the names of your one or your ones, those for whom you are intentionally praying that they would come to faith in Christ. Just speak their name to the Lord. Lord, as we lift these names, we affirm together that you love each of these people infinitely more than we ever could, that you know them more intimately than anyone in all the universe, that you saw them, you thought of them, you created them long before they came to be, and you knew every day of their life before there was yet one of them. You know the beginning from the end. You know the points of your own intervention in their lives. And so, Lord, as we lift their names, we're not lifting them because we know what to do necessarily, but we know that you do. We ask for your direction. We ask that uh, you would draw them far beyond our puny efforts to faith in Christ. And we look forward to what you will do in their lives. Lord, may we be missionary people, 
not missing our moment, that being found faithful in this uh, overwhelming task of reaching a world for Christ. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.